So I was like, you know what though? I need to establish her as a big star in a big space like this. Mm-hmm. And everything can't be at the small theater we could afford downtown. So I put the rehearsal scenes in that big theater because there's a big space, but I didn't have to pay anybody to be there. So I shot all the rehearsal scenes in there to get in your head that she was in this giant place. And then when I shot the actual performance, it was this tiny theater we could afford, but your brain already told yourself that she was at the Microsoft. That is so smart. Wow. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In our 300th episode, we wanted to take a moment to say thank you to the many directors and directors team members who have participated in our conversation series over the years. We also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning into our show and supporting our members' work, whether this is your first or your 300th time listening. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Nisha Ganatra's new comedy, The High Note. The film tells the story of Maggie, the overworked personal assistant to superstar singer Grace Davis. When Grace's manager presents her with a choice that could alter the course of her career, Maggie and Grace come up with a plan that could change both of their lives forever. In addition to the high note, Ms. Ganatra's other directorial credits include the feature films Late Night, Fast Food High, and Chutney Popcorn, the movie for television Pete's Christmas, and episodes of Transparent, Dear White People, Mr. Robot, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Ms. Ganatra spoke with fellow director Laura Teruso about filming The High Note in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Nisha, this is such an honor to to get to talk to you about this film, which I love. And uh, we've, we go way back. We've, we go we've, all the way back to film school. Film. <laughs> We've, yeah, we've known each other for like 10 years now or more. Yeah. Um, Thank you for doing this, Laura. My (laughs) pleasure. My my pleasure and my honor. Um, I want to start by asking what attracted you to this project? What attracted me to this project? Well, um, it was definitely the fact that we had uh, the script, you know, always the story in the script that it was two women uh, two female leads. They were really smart. They were really good at their job. And, um, you know, it was also just like one of those old school movies where it's just like, you remember this? I feel like it was a, a theatrical movie that they used to make and that I loved watching when I was growing up. And then I finally was like, oh, here, they don't make these anymore. Let's like, mm-hmm. get yeah, let's get to make one of these. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it should be noted that uh, it's a musical. Uh, and and so with that, having also just directed a musical yes. <laughs> of sorts, a, a dance movie, but like this was, had original music in it. And can you talk a little bit about, like, was that all done beforehand or how, was that something that you did in prep how did how yeah did- actually that's because you just did work it we can uh, we could talk yeah. about that because one thing that really surprised me was that when you kind of when you make a music driven movie that you have to produce an album basically first and then make the movie on yeah. top of the album so I was curious how you did that on work it like did you have original songs all ahead of time did you have this like no we had four weeks to choose the music yeah, <laughs> and so, and so we like pick songs and the 
the dances were choreographed uh, to the songs we picked. And then in a few instances, but not many, uh, the songs were then swapped out later with other songs. But for the most part, it was what was there. So with something like this, you know, how far in prep were you, you know, were you working with the music producer on all the original music in the film? Yeah, it was one of the first things we had to do and address. Like and immediately when I saw the script, I was like, I need Linda Cohen like tomorrow. <laughs> and then um once and and what was nice was it was universal. So they have like universal music who really know what they're doing, like Mike Noblock, and they, you know, they've kind of done all of these music-driven movies before. So they were, it was interesting because they were like, we can sort of plug you into the system we have, but we think it's always more interesting to shake it up a little too. And we really wanted like um, female, you know, artists as much as possible. And also, cause if you're making a movie about like how hard it is for women in the music industry, you don't want to then be like, and all these dudes were fun, you know? <laughs> so, um, so it was that. And then, you know, the simultaneous search for a music producer as well as like literally songwriters. Like, so we were at the very beginning where, um, it was the first time I got to do that aspect where you write a song brief and then you go out to a bunch of songwriters and then everybody sends you their demos or sometimes they demo something for the mm -hmm. song that you're like looking for. And then um, we went through this amazing thing where we met this um, incredible artist named Sarah Ahrens, who is a songwriter who's hit, like she's written every hit song you love on the radio right now. And it was one of those things where she gave me three of her demos and then the next, I listened to them that night and that next day I was like, hi, I, I like all of them. <laughs> and so then I kind of was like, actually what I really needed was a sound for the character of Maggie and what she was doing. Like, what did she do as a producer and how do you show an audience like what a producer does? Because that was the major challenge was how do you make that visual and how do you um, find a way to convey that slightly, hopefully cinematically. <laughs> Um, and so when I found Sarah Ahrens, I was like, you're going to be Maggie's sound. And that would be um, our sort of touch point for everything. So we knew like, this is what Maggie does. She makes everything the way Sarah Ahrens makes it. So then it was a matter of finding the songs that Calvin could sing in his range. And also, which is pretty fantastic range. Um, and then also what songs of that Sarah Ahrens could make hers so that we knew what Maggie was doing as a producer. Um, same with Tracy um, Alice Ross, her character was kind of, um, it was more interesting because she was a singer who had, you know, sort of been on this treadmill of performing her hit songs and wanted to write new songs and take a, a leap of faith, but was discouraged by everybody. So we needed someone to write a song that you would buy as her, like, like we were like, what if it was Beyonce like 15 years from now or you know, like back when it was sort of Alicia Keys or who the big song, singer songwriters were. So I needed someone to write a song that you bought as the big hit song of mm -hmm. that decade that she's still performing now that everybody still loves and goes to her concerts and waits for her to sing. And mm -hmm. then also find a song that she wrote that she was afraid to show everybody. And then also a song that she wrote for the very end that Maggie could produce and Sarah Aaron's sound was right for. Yeah. So it was really like tracking those songs, breaking them down, working with Rodney Jerkins, our incredible music producer, to arc them out for the characters. So it was really like 
directing two things like you were directing your your story and then you were directing the music story and the arc of the music and what it was all telling everybody as well totally and and were the lyrics to the songs written in the script were those all was it like a proper book or (laughs) it wasn't until we got once we got the songs and we said this is the song and this is how it's going to go then Flora Grayson our amazing screenwriter went back and put them into the scripts just so everyone knew what the hell we were talking about and then also so I could look at the lyrics and read the script and go oh actually we need to change these lyrics like Sarah Ann's is amazing but she's 24 and so when she wrote love myself like there were some lines that just um didn't you know like there was literally a line that was like am I a hater if I only hate myself and I was like hmm, how about we change that for Tracy Ellis Ross's character uh, I don't know that I think Grace Davis should be like am I a hater at the end of the movie so she was like yeah, yeah I see that I see that she was I mean it was just such an amazing collaboration between everybody to figure out um you know, who, who sang what where. And then actually I had two songs that were competing. Um, Corinne Bailey Ray wrote this heartbreaking song and then Sarah Aaron's wrote Love Myself. And Love Myself, I heard and was like, this is a song on the radio I would hear right now. I knew that was gonna be the single and that was gonna be, cause also then the music department's like, what song are we gonna release as the, you know, like I guess Star Is Born did it so brilliantly with Shallow being a big hit song before the movie came out, which then was like a feedback loop and lent the movie more credibility. Also Lady Gaga, so <laughs> a little small thing that really helped them out. So I feel like there was that, but then Corinne Bailey Ray's song was so perfect lyrically and emotionally that we ended up having two songs. So she, um, the song that she sings at the piano with Maggie was supposed to be the same song as the end that then Maggie changed and produced, but we ended up using, I didn't want to leave any one of those songs on the table. So I just put them both in there. Wow, cool. And so, and was soul always the sound? Like, because it's not just the original music, then you have this amazing soundtrack that's complementing the original music. And and was that something that was determined beforehand or was that a... a That was a Flora Grusin, the writer, is a huge music buff and still to this day introduces music that I didn't know I'd love into my life. Like she is just a a joy of an artist to have in your life because she's that person that's always like, have you heard this? And then you're like, this is my new favorite song. And Mm -hmm. um, she wrote all of those songs into the original script. I, I would love to take credit for her incredible taste, but... It's really her incredible taste. <laughs> um, and then the insane scale of Linda Cohen to clear all the music from Flora's incredible taste because, you know, like she wrote, um, she wrote a song in there that bad girl um, song that three publishers had claimed the rights to. And I guess this was a dispute going on since the sixties and everybody just sort of left it where it was. And then when we wanted it for the movie, Linda had to go, find these three people, negotiate who owned what, settle all that dispute, and then license the song oh for the movie. God. So she wow. like, you know, settled this decades old dispute so that we could use the song in the movie. Um, yeah, it was amazing. amazing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the film visually. Uh, I wanna talk about the visual style uh, it, because this is so distinct and, and specific. Uh, starting with the shot where she's leaving the Capitol Records building. And uh, it's just, you know, that shot is just iconic. It's gorgeous. And mm-hmm. and then there are lots of lens flares. And how did you come to the visual style? Uh, how did you work with your DP? What were your references? 
Oh my gosh, there were so many. So we had, we always knew we wanted to do this beautiful um, golden sun. Like, um, of course, all the photographers that we looked at are all like escaping my hair right now. <laughs> but, you know, Lorca, it was all like the books of, you know, that we just were like, these, these are the right visual references. Mm -hmm. And then um, from that, it all kind of had to then go to, well, what, camera and what lenses right so we all knew we wanted like that large format Alexa 65 everybody's just like dying over and then we wanted to do um like the 239 so mm -hmm. then it was how do we capture like Los Angeles and the landscape of Los Angeles in a way that lends itself to this and um that's when I realized like how I think I um, everybody probably already knows how important your location manager is, but it really like didn't strike me until I did this movie in Toronto. And um, there was like a location manager who just would just say no to like whatever locations we were in the script. And I was like, oh my God, like this person's position can actually just tank the entire look at your film. And it's really like this amazing thing about filmmaking to me that we all sort of say it's the director, but really it's so collaborative because every step of the way, somebody impedes or supports your vision mm -hmm. in a way that directly impacts the final look of the film, you know? Mm -hmm. And we had this incredible locations manager and an amazing um, Nate Kelly, the producer, the line producer, the producer who um, just never, who always sort of pushed me and said, you know, what, what is your dream one? And then let's start there and we can come down from there. And I think, I don't know, coming from indie film, the answer my, you know, in your mindset too, is always like, who's going to let us shoot there? Like yeah. it wasn't like, you know, oh, we know anyone's oh. mother. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was like, which one do we not have to paint back if we paint it? Like those are like <laughs> the questions I'm used to asking when it comes to locations. Like, cause it's me on the subway with a paintbrush. Right. Like, Long Island with rollers on the train. It's like that kind of nonsense. <laughs> so I was still trying to get my head around like, what do you mean I could shoot anywhere, you know? So, um, so yeah, that was like a really fun thing that uh, like there was a grocery store written in the script and I was like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could shoot at the Laurel Canyon Country Mart and everyone was like, yeah, no, we're not shutting down Laurel Canyon. It's like everyone will hate us if we stop traffic on Laurel Canyon. And I was like, well, it's a pre-record, so we don't have to stop traffic. You know, it looks pretty having traffic go through there and it won't fuck up our sound. And so, you know, because we also have this incredible sound mixer who didn't kibosh everything you know like every because there was like remember you ever like you're in the middle of like of dreaming about your beautiful scene and your whole tech scout is this disgruntled scout person just being like well this is gonna have to be loose and you're like all right well like let's just start killing my dreams from the minute we get out of here. like you just spend that whole time in the bus listening to them just about every sound problem and then somehow yeah. it always works right like somehow you, you if you're lucky no it doesn't always work oh my god like if you have an amazing sound mixer yeah it always works. I, I will say I was the sound GA at NYU I know we were, we were we both studied in the grad film program at NYU we were there at different times yeah but I'm very proud of my sound GA ship because every time I land on a set I always go up to the sound guy and I'm like I'm one of you. I was, <laughs> I was the sound GA. Like I, like I, I got, we got, got this. To the first AC. Yeah. I'm like, 
<laughs> I feel your pain. I'm still going to make you pull focus at a very low F stop. <laughs> but at least I know what I'm asking you to do. <laughs> I think they like it. They really appreciate that we are, we know. Exactly we've, we've done every job on a set. I mean, that. Thank you, NYU. Little shout out. I know. Um, you know so weird is I I was walking down um, Larchmont and with a friend who ran into an actor who was working with David Fincher. And they were talking to the actor and he was like, oh, David Fincher's a genius. And I was like, hmm. like, <laughs> you know, anytime, I'm just my personal bias, not nothing against David Fincher, but I'm like, can we reserve the word genius for like people curing cancer and whatever, you know, so then... <laughs> He, but I, I was listening and they were explaining that he was a genius because he could do every single job on the set. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, hmm. and then as we walked away, I was like, you know, I can do every single job on the set. Like, like, every director can do every job on the set. Like not as good as that person, obviously, but it's our job to know every single job on the set. Like we yeah. know them and we could do them in a pinch because yeah. we went to NYU, <laughs> but not that great, you know, but it was, uh, and I was like, no one's calling us geniuses. <laughs> like, what, the, what the fuck is that? I don't know. It's such a weird thing. And then they were like, really? You do? And I was like, yeah, we all do. <laughs> and you sound like, I don't know, disgruntled, which I am so not because I'm so thankful for my amazing <laughs> career. But I was still just like, yeah, we know how to do that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, um, we could we could do a whole thirty minutes on the word genius, um, but we will spare the DP. Uh, <laughs> okay, so back to the DP. Uh, Jason Cormick was our DP. Back to the high note. I <laughs> know. So Jason Cormick was the DP. He came from you know Harris Savides, like was his mentor and training. Wow. Like his sort of um, you know bar was like that and. And it was so great because he did not know he was making a studio comedy. Like he would not, like, which was fantastic because that was what we wanted. Like, I feel like being comedy director, sometimes you are not taken seriously visually, right? Like people mm -hmm. take for granted that you are actually blocking and setting up frames and shots to be funny, that there's absolutely a way to direct a scene that will make it way less funny if you're not thinking about comedy in your staging and blocking but for some reason probably because for a long time there were like rom-coms made with like not a lot of attention paid to lighting and and it got kind of thrown in this like well you're not cinematic like cinema is drama and comedy is but I was like but remember when Billy Wilder and remember when, you know like Lubitsch anyone anyone no okay <laughs> So I felt like, you know, it's got to have this look and this feel and we have to absolutely buy. Mm -hmm. The scariest thing about the movie to me was, are you going to buy that Grace Davis is a, is a world-renowned celebrity? Because I watched Notting Hill, which I loved, and even with Julia Roberts, who was the biggest star in the world at that time, you barely buy it, you know? And if you don't buy that, yeah. your whole movie's lost. So how do we do that and it's like you do that absolutely with your cinematographer and your lighting and your costumer and you know it was um and your makeup artist and your hairstyle like everyone had to really get on board with how do we create this illusion and make it stick and um that was like a major thing so once we we also like tested all this we had these um amazing tribe seven lenses that 
we wanted to do anamorphic, but I didn't want the compressed look of, this is going to sound so nerdy, but you know how like when you have anamorphic flares and they're ellipses, they're not circles. And I just had in my head that they had to be circles because it was music and there was a record industry and there was this whole, if you watch it as a, a super nerd, there's like a whole, um, you know, motif of circles, like from the Capitol Records building to the David's home to like the um, the way the camera moves like in there is it's always circling and circle. So it didn't feel right to then have the flares not be circular, but circular requires spherical lenses. So how could we do anamorphic with spherical lenses? And then Jason figured it out and we got these beautiful lenses and we did like, we're calling it like spherical anamorphic. But when we watched the camera test, I we both were just like, like my, I had never seen anything like that. And we just were so blown away by this new thing because how rare to go in and say, wow, I've never seen that done before, you know? And yeah. so um, I, it pains me that we released during the pandemic and nobody can see it on <laughs> the, big the DGA screen, which was my dream screening. I was like, Arclight DGA, I can't wait, you know? And so hopefully we will get to project this on that big, beautiful DGA theater screen because it really, it really does deserve it. Like it is a beautiful, Beautifully, beautifully shot. shot. Yeah. And, and let's talk about Los Angeles as a character in the film. Yes. Especially nowadays with, uh, you know, directors being sent to Atlanta and Tennessee, all, all these, you know, Toronto, we, we shot uh, working up in Toronto. Like you're always being um, told to go where the tax credit is. Like you're always where like, the tax credit is, where yeah. sometimes it doesn't make any sense to yeah. shoot a, a a movie that's so about LA. So how did you go about um, convincing your producers and your team that it had to be shot in Los Angeles? Yeah, I mean, we all desperately wanted to shoot in LA, but we're definitely being told by the many people to go to Atlanta. Yeah. And uh, and then they, I think they even were trying to budget for Toronto and it was like, oh God. So mm -hmm. it was the same, I mean, the same with Late Night, they were like budgeting for Canada versus New York. and you know, you do the thing you always do. You have to give up shooting days to get the location you want. Yeah. So luckily with us, like it was right when Atlanta was going through that horrible political time where they were um, uh, making it very hard for women and abortion and mm -hmm. all of the sort of anti-choice efforts they were doing. So we were kind of like, hey, we can't go there and support this economy while this is going on, which kind of worked, but really what worked more was just saying, okay, I'll give up the number of shooting days to make up for the tax credit. And then also in the end, we got um, the LA tax credit. So that ultimately allowed us to stay in Los Angeles. But yeah, I watch it and I'm like, imagine if I had to recreate that in, in Atlanta and convince you uh, that that was- oh, That Capitol Records shot would not exist. No, they would not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, how many shooting days did you have? You know what, I knew. That was good come up. I totally <laughs> forgot. Um, and so I asked our producer and she says 35, which is a lot. Feels yeah, like that's that's good. Yeah. 35 is good. <laughs> but you you did a lot in those 35 days. I mean, I, I, I'm really It impressed. feels like a lot, except for when you realize like it's a lot of dance and music and performance in addition to, you know, and cars. Cars like I don't know how you feel about driving shots. Now, whenever I see a driving scene, I'm like, oh, because <laughs> that's just you in a truck sucking carbon monoxide, right? Yeah. Backwards, making yourself sick. <laughs> like, 
You're like, why did I sign up for this roller coaster ride? Like, what's yeah. happening? You're in a tent. Like, what? Why am I being carabined and fucking <laughs> what? Like, and then it's a kidnapping. It's a kidnapping over this walkie talkie. It's all like nonsense. <laughs> but it's better than like you know indie films and like transparent where it was like and here's your spot you lie down on the seat on the little area between the front seat and the back seat but lay low or the camera will see you and you can direct from right here and I'm like lying on a ferny pad being like why has nothing changed since film school like why is this still the technique for how to direct a scene in a car like no one's figured it out we all just have to lie down in the back seat and hide. like what's going on so weird. <laughs> Laura, we got to figure out a new way to shoot these scenes. I know. It's <laughs> great. Like the AD brings you over and is like, here's your furniture. And you're like, why? I was stunned. I was like, I really thought you guys had a better system. <laughs> so, there was a ton of uh, huge... <laughs> live performance scenes in the movie that were really impressive with oh, crowds and and uh we shared we shared a choreographer Akamon Jones the uh, great Akamon Jones. um so how did you go about shooting the live performance stuff where did you shoot it were those all real people was it CGI like how the hell did you do that yeah no one can afford all those people, yeah. <laughs> where you know people? Uh, how did that happen I can also afford CGI so <laughs> By the way, <laughs> I've like heard about all these incredible ability, like, you know, technological ways to do it. But then in the end, it's like, you can't afford that. <laughs> and you're like, so I guess it's just me shooting plates and being like, scramble, you know? <laughs> we shot, I had it in my head that I loved uh, the Ford Amphitheater. And mm-hmm. the thing that I loved so much about it, not just that I went to an Outfest concert there and then fell in love with the, with the space, but was that when we went there, we had such an amazing LA-based crew and everybody was like, I've shot so many movies and commercials and TV here and I've never even seen this theater or never even shot here. So Mm -hmm. I love that it was just like, let me just find the parts of LA that I love so much and that never get shown, you know? Like we're we're in the city with like a mountain uh, running right through it. And yet rarely are there hiking like you always see the like here's the shot of the palm trees and the Beverly Hills sign and I guess I had also NYU in my head that was like don't shoot postcards you know and I was like I was like listening to the wrath of Boris for a man in my <laughs> shot at Beverly Hills sign um but I kind of just thought um you know how to like just get these these beautiful vistas of Los Angeles and we have this large format we have this beautiful um you know aspect ratio like let's just show as much of the city that I love as possible so I really love the hiking scene I really love like the Ford Amphitheater there's this um incredible um theater downtown and that you know, we scouted everything. Like you scout the Microsoft Theater, you scout, and then ultimately it's like can't afford the Microsoft Theater. <laughs> but, but I did have the idea of like, well, once you go, because once you go into those theaters, then there's like all this. Um, you have to pay that theater's union for their crew, and they have to work a certain amount of hours. And we can. So I was like, you know what though, I need to establish her as a big star in a big space like this, mm-hmm. and everything can't be at the small theater. We could afford downtown, so. 
I put the rehearsal scenes in that big theater. There was a big space, but I didn't have to pay anybody to be there. So I shot all the rehearsal scenes in there to get in your head that she was in this giant place. And then when I shot the actual performance, it was this tiny theater we could afford, but your brain already told yourself that she was at the Microsoft. That is so smart. Wow. We know them all. sound of an audience at the Microsoft. <laughs> Uh, the performances are so natural in this and the actors have such good chemistry. How, how do you work? Was there a ton of improv? It felt very improvisational, especially the scenes with um, Tracy and Ice Cube. Like how, how, you know, how did you get people warmed up and comfy? Yeah. How do you get them nice and comfy? I was going to ask you, because you also have like super natural performances and everybody looks like they really love each other and they're having a good time. And, um, you know, it is that vibe where you want, you hope for that behind the camera as much as possible. Cause I feel like that energy reads on camera, but sometimes it doesn't, you know, <laughs> like sometimes you're like, wow, everyone was miserable in that movie. They look like, you know, the whole <laughs> but, um, but I mean, Tracy Ellis Ross is one of those actresses that just has a generosity of spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I think she just, she wants to love you and she wants to bring you in. And so because she operates that way, it comes through like right through the lens into your heart. I feel like, you know, like she um, immediately took to Kelvin and was like, started calling each other mom and son and all this, you know, it was really like sweet. Um, Dakota, I did chemistry reads for who should be dated with, um, and that was like its own really fun thing that we ended up doing in New York with two actors. And then um, Ice Cube was just somebody I always loved and thought would be amazing and hilarious. And I didn't know, Dakota was like, you know, I was in movies together where he like saw me in every scene. And I was like, <laughs> I did not know that, but it's working. So let's go, like, let's do it. And so he was just very funny because he brought more of that to it. Like he really put down, uh, Maggie's character a lot and it's it's fun but it was actually very intentional because we needed it to increase sympathy for her too because Mm -hmm. you know it's it's one of those movies where the more that lead character is kind of um, put down in the beginning the more the audience will kind of root for her yeah I realized it's a Cinderella story I mean right it it it's just in that tradition um and and I thought a lot about watching it uh, this last time about how many, how many, how how it talks about art and the process of being an artist and the sacrifices you have to make to do that. I mean, the scenes with Tracy are very much about that, and 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 Dakota. And and um, did you find parallels between what what they were talking about in terms of the music business and uh, your experience as a filmmaker? And, and being a female filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, I think we all have the same sort of um, feelings about <laughs> our industry and who has access and who doesn't and who has for so long and who does now. It's a really um, heartbreaking conversation to have, right? Because every year you're like, and everything feels so different. Like the change is really coming. And then the stats come out and you're like, what? What? <laughs> You're just like, how? How did that happen? Like, it's such a, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, it was really satisfying to 
just voice it, right? To just say like, this is what the issue is and this is why. And I think it's a really compelling character arc too, to be like, this is the impossible thing I'm up against and yet I'm gonna keep going for it because what else will I do, you know? But I will say that there was something about the struggle of trying to show the audience and understand what a music producer does that we came to in the edit with the um, amazing editor, Wendy Brickmont, who, um, you know, cut little things like Annie Hall and uh, Mean Girls. <laughs> and I was just like, well, those are two of the most brilliant editing companies. So why don't you come teach me everything you know in the editing <laughs> um, And she was just incredible. And then we had a music editor, which was something I'd never had the honestly privilege of having before on any movie. It's just been, you know, me and Eleanor trying to figure out how to cut this song and mostly Eleanor because she's so good at it. But it was really um, amazing to have a music editor and I didn't know what an asset that is and what, you know, I guess I'm not a genius because I didn't know what a music editor is. <laughs> Damn it. Anyway, now I am. So <laughs> like, <laughs> Laura, I was so close. <laughs> Fincher <laughs> and he, he um Louis Schultz was this brilliant music editor and he was doing all this stuff and I finally I was like you know there's a scene where she's she's putting together a song for David and I was like what if we just went really out there audio like don't don't do everything linear let's just go crazy and show everyone what her creative process is with these, by the way, four shots we have, but I'm pretty sure you can do it. And then, you know, Wendy was great and like cut to the screen and we had VFX come in and just put in like Pro Tools sessions into the scene of actually what Louis had created. Mm -hmm. And it was just this like, you know, almost 30 seconds, but it tells you instantly because of where she takes the song and where she ends with the song. And you hear things drop out, you hear what she's hearing, you kind of like, we just got in the soundscape of her head of a music producer and then got into the scene where she plays the result of what she did. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, until I did that, I kept getting that note of the character note. And then when I finally did that, nobody questioned that note wow. and the note just kind of disappeared. So I knew it was successful. And then we got other notes. But like that was that was just a very satisfying moment where I was like, okay, we did it. We answered the question of what does a music producer do, and we did it with sound. Yeah, so your 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 original grad position GA will be very proud of. That. <laughs> um, do you have a? I know a lot though. From, do you know? Do you remember Karen Hartsfield at NYU? She, we would all be in those little. Um, because you always had to cut your first movie on the flatbed, right? And then you not, not, not I. You didn't have to. You were the first, yeah. Because by my second year, the flatbed disappeared, and we all got digital. But the first year, we were on flatbeds. Uh. Karen Hartsfield would be in there, and she was just like, "I was like, what is going on in there?" And she would just yell out, "Sounds going to save my movie, Nisha." And <laughs> you would, because you were like, "I don't understand anything in this movie." And then she would present it, and it would be like this brilliant sound design, and it would be so moving and so incredible. And she really, she taught me like really from her own student films, like the importance of sound and how wow. um, it can just pull together. Like, like in my first indie film, Chutney Popcorn, the the person who lent us their motorcycle didn't come the last day like just had some conflict and so we're shooting like the finale of the movie <laughs> where the character rides off on the motorcycle we have no 
motorcycle. And I was like, and all that came in my head was sound is going to save this save movie. my movie. Okay. And like, I was like, here's a Kina Jaffe, here's a helmet and a skateboard. And I'm going to shoot you from here. And you're just going to wow. slide into the scene. And I'm going to put the sound of a motorcycle under you. And no one's going to ever know. Yeah. We never had a And well, literally people watch the movie and go, and I end when she rides off on that motorcycle and you never see her ride off on a motorcycle because we didn't have one, but you hear it. And so you believe it, you know? I love that story so much. <laughs> Sound uh, and and, and we, <laughs> we should mention that you uh, played a starring role in Chutney Popcorn. That's how we met. I never mentioned that. I was a, I was a huge <laughs> fan of Chutney Popcorn and I fangirled you. I, I'm pretty sure we met at like Alfest one year and I was like, yeah. I love your movie. Uh, but <laughs> but ha having been in front of the camera on that, I feel like there's such a kind of, and this is also just you, like, you know, I, I really believe that you see the filmmaker in their films and there's such mm -hmm. a kind of warmth to your work and a real emotional uh, mm -hmm. honesty that that is just true of you as a person. And so having had that experience of being in front of the camera, do you feel like that make, made you or makes you more empathetic and more understanding of what, what that experience is like for, for an actor? That's such a sweet interpretation. It makes me less empathetic. So I'm like, I can do it. So you, no, just kidding. <laughs> like, of course it does. <laughs> like, it's terrifying to be in front of the camera. It's awful. This is awful. What we're doing right now is horrifying. <laughs> but what it, I mean, I, I am serious. Like, I would love to know what your process was on, on work. It, like, how did you get everybody to be so, like, I bought that group completely as like, we're friends, we hang out, we do this, you know. I think it's like- Other than just being a lovely person yourself, like do you- Creating that atmosphere of it's okay to fuck up, it's okay to fail. Mm -hmm. Like if you improvise a line that doesn't work, like it's, that's cool. I'm gonna spit out lines that maybe don't work. Like we're gonna, as long as we create that environment where we're all safe, we're here to love and support each other. And it's okay if we fail that that's yeah. sort of my, you know, it's okay if we fail because I know how to edit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get that shit right out. <laughs> so, okay. We would do that on set. Like, like that's the, that's the flatbed training. That's the one end of the film. That's the other end. And that's me throwing it out of the bin. <laughs> well, and, and I'm I'm a firm believer in improv. I mean, I I as a comedy director, like yeah. improv is the beginning and the end. I I think it it just you get you get natural from from improv, and so encouraging actors to to go off, but and and joke alts and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And and I can it's like it is a it's such a skill the improv because some actors are better at it than others. Yeah. And some will just go on and on in a way that is- You know how to- Really makes it impossible for you to cut that scene. And yeah. you're like, oh, I want that thing you said and that thing, but none of this 30 minute weird thing you did in the middle. Exactly. But having, you know, also being writers, like it's about knowing, okay, say this and this and put those together and then and then let's go again. You know, like being able to, to like for me, writing and directing are one and the same. Like it's okay. kind of- you're just writing in a different way when you're directing. Yeah. Um, so, so do you have a favorite scene in the film? Oh, wow. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I have favorite songs, so everything with those songs. But, um, you know, I think like that scene where Tracy does say, like where she says in all the history of music, there have only been like, you know, mm -hmm. this many women who have had a number one hit and only, you know, none of them were over the age of 40 and only one of them was black. And it was, or, you know, whatever the line is, because I forgot now. <laughs> um, like she... I think that bathroom scene, even reading it in the script, we all knew like this was a really, you know, important yeah. scene and this changes the whole game. Mm -hmm. um, so those, I mean, those scenes are great. I love everything with Zoe Chow, who's just like a delightful person. Hilarious. And Hilarious. really funny. Yeah. Really I'm talking about somebody razor sharp with her improv, like really, really yeah. and fun. Um, I love when she runs back for the dresses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally which was not which was improv too you know and then ice cube every single thing ice cube improvs <laughs> makes me die laughing <laughs> like he's just everything i think anything he says walking away and then in adr he'll come and do give you a whole new fresh round of improvs that you can choose from so he's just wow. like so funny and we'll just you know keep adding and adding and adding and he was he was like, I used to hate ADR, but now I realize you get a chance to make it better, you know? And it was really, it was really a, a great lesson to me that like, you know, as, as comedy directors, we're always like trying to fit in better jokes all the way till the end, exactly. but to have a nice game and just like, you know, improv with you in the ADR session was such a joy. Like he's just incredibly fun. Cool. Well, that is our time. time. Thank, thank you so much, Lisa. <laughs> this was great. Uh, it's this, so it's much fun. It's, like almost like, it's almost now. like we're at dinner. And it's almost like we're, we're at film school, but with like clean, we've showered. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to carry heavy shit anymore. That's, like, that's my guilt of directing now is I'm always like, should I get that sandbag? Because I really don't want to, but. And then, like, I start to, and then someone yells at me, and the union get really mad if I pick just say, not anymore. Mm -mm. Yeah, I, like, I can't. I'd love to slap all this equipment, but did you? Yeah, you will have yeah, my yeah. head. So, yeah. uh, so <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been great, and thank you, uh, thank you DGA. Yes, thank uh, you, DGA. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring a conversation with director Heidi Ewing and for our annual Meet the Nominees series, which will feature panel discussions with DGA Award-nominated directors Lee Isaac Chung, Emerald Fennell, David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin, and Chloe Zhao. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.